Welcome to our seventh episode of the Food Can Fix It podcast. I'm your host, Marianne Stixet. Our guest today is Tina Saltvet, formerly one of Norway's most profiled oil analysts and now a senior advisor for sustainable finance at Nordea Bank, the largest banking group in the Nordic region. Tina talked to us about what prompted her career switch, why the financial industry needs to become more vocal on how it will contribute to global climate change mitigation, and what lessons the food industry can learn from the transition the energy sector is undergoing. Welcome to our podcast, Tina. We're delighted to have you with us, just fresh off the stage at the Eat Stockholm Food Forum. Thank you. Now, you just made a fascinating professional transition. For over a decade, you were one of the most profiled oil analysts in Norway. And then at the start of the year, you made uh, a transition to become senior advisor for sustainable finance at Nordea. What prompted you to shift from oil and gas to sustainability? I must say it's more than one aspect of that. And um, I think the first one is very personal because I started to get quite worried about the effect of the climate changes. We could actually see that it has an effect on society and the economy. So I think that was a personal part. Then it's more a professional part as well because I've been analysing the oil market for 10 years. And after a while, you know, you think you're repeating yourself too often. So I think you needed some new challenges. And then it was no doubt because there is so much happening in the green market for energy. You're seeing costs for solar power, wind power falling sharply. You see new markets raising, raising and um, you're seeing there is... In these markets, you see the new organizations, uh, the new markets growing, and that's where you want to be, where the interesting things are happening. And also, when we go into the financing part, I think um, uh, the financial services, banks, um, financing institutes, they've been quite quiet in this uh, green debate, uh, the the debate about the climate changes. Now it's time to for us actually to come on stage as well and be a bit more visible and be a bit more clear and on how we want to contribute because it's no doubt that the financial sector needs to be part of this transmission and uh, we want to be there in it and we want to contribute so I think there is a lot of things happening now in the financial market on this. Now you were saying that, that the banks and financial institutions have been quite quiet so far. And what is it that's lured them out? Is it their is it their conscience that's kept them up at night, or is it demand from uh, from investors that have prompted this shift? I think it's both, uh, actually. Yeah, because uh, the uh, especially the insurance sector has seen that the costs of the climate changes have been increasing rapidly for the last ten years. So actually now. Uh, of a cost issue as well. You have to start implementing climate risk in your business models. So I think that's the first step where we've seen it. Uh, But we've also seen that investors, clients, consumers are starting to demand from companies, from the uh, financial sector, that we are much more clear and transparent about how we are reporting and how we are exposed to climate risk. And that is new and that is a big pressure on us um, because we are, as I said, a very important piece in, in the society. 
And you were talking about factoring in the climate risks. Do we have adequate models today to properly factor in those risks? Or are we still at the very early beginnings? Uh, it is at a very start, I must admit. And um, we have seen that climate risk has been an issue. Sustainable risk has been an issue for a long time, more than a decade with, uh, on the investment side. So you can find uh, funds, for example, that have a very clear strategy of where they want to go and where they place the money. And that could be sustainable, that could be climate friendly, that could be green. But on the financial side, the financing side, uh, this is quite new. And this is something uh, which has starting to make a mark in the uh, financial industry. I think we've seen uh, the uh, tension around this has been increasing a lot since June last year. Because June last year, um, the Financial Stability Board, headed by uh, Michael Bloomberg, this team was sat down after the Paris Agreement was signed and the G20 required that climate risk should also be a part of the financial industry. Uh, so the report and the um, uh, report was out last summer and I think that has been guiding for the financial industry. And this March in 2008, uh, the EU uh, released a report. So far, there are no requirements to do so. It's... Uh, it's um, recommended mm -hmm. that you start to implement climate risk now in 2018 and uh, the beginning of 2019. Uh, but the EU also includes uh, other uh, sustainability risks, for example, water. Um, you could have um, yeah, different, different parts of the uh, or the uh, sustainability uh, risks or issues. So these are recommendations for companies to implement that they need to start reporting on this or... The yeah, these are first of all uh, recommendations for the financial industries. Oh, okay. But for us to be able to say something uh, sensible about it uh, and to measure our risk, uh, which these are recommendations for, mm. uh, we need to get that information from the companies. Because a financial, um, a, a finan the financial industry itself maybe is not that, you know, exposed to climate risk. We have buildings, you know, we have people, but usually that is not a real problem. The problem is all the money we are either investing for uh, the investors in the funds or the money we're lending to other companies. So we need to be clear about um, the climate risk in these, um, in these, uh, on the lending side, fina financing side, and the investment side, and therefore we need to collect this data, and that is a big job. Mm. Uh, and we will not get there this year. We will not get there next year. But we're working with the models. We're working also to stress test this, and uh, what the EU is working on now is to find a common ground a common way of reporting it, a common way of measuring it, and a common way of stress testing it. And that a lot will happen uh, in 2018 and 2019. Now, which areas would you say, or which sectors would you say, do you see particularly high level of high level, high level risks? I'm not going to go as far as say, where do you see the most stranded assets? But where do you see which sectors that, that, that uh, where perhaps there's, there's, uh, there's a high level of risk that's being, that's being registered um, in your systems? Of course, if you look at climate risk um, as such, uh, there will, of course, be the fossil fuel industries and also the uh, energy intensive industries, which are um, based on or um, use a lot of fossil fuels today. You could also see um, industries, industries which are connected to the fossil fuels, for example, oil service, uh, because if you see a fast and sharp 
switch faster than you calcula calculated in today, you could easily come in a situation where you will have a stranded asset. Mm. But if you look at sustainability, um, you could have a, an oil com company which is sustainable um, within its sector. So you have one question is how sustainable is a company within one sector and how sustainable is the sector in the long term as well. So oil and gas will not be sustainable in the long term, but one oil and gas company could be sustainable today. Now, you spend your, a, lot of, a lot of your time uh, on the road, I know, meeting, meeting with investors. Now, what, um, what are their primary concerns and, and do they really attribute weight to sustainability when they decide whether or not to invest in a company or is it really just so they can be able to check that off their list when they do their CSR report at the end of the year? I think for the investors, um, there is a growing uh, attention to and um, attention to sustain, uh, sustainability risk. And um, there are Because it, the, the problem today is really the short-termism in the market. When you do investments, um, you often think about the future as the next quarter, the next year. Climate change is, is a long-term problem. So that is something with the mentality within the financial market. We need to change it. And that is something we are working with as well. How could you fo focus a bit more long-term when you do your investments? But I still think there is a growing awareness of this problem. And also, which is quite new, uh, I will say, uh, is the, the focus from investors, not only to see the financial return of an investment, but also the social return. So it's not enough just to get a financial return, but you also need to show a social return. And that is interesting because that would help to get the shift to a more sustainable uh, economy. Now, do you think that a company today, uh, is, do you have to make a choice between profitability or purpose or is it, a po is it possible to, to achieve both? That is a very good news because now we actually see that uh, you don't have to choose. Actually, one of the companies or the companies who are de delivering the best has been the companies with the highest score on, on sustainability, mm. which, is a, uh, which is very good because that was the saying before. You could either choose between um, sustainability mm. or you could choose between profit, but mm. that is not the truth any longer. And I think that is what we're seeing. At that um, you know, the company which is solid, they have a good, uh, uh, they have a good strategy and the... Um, The owners and also the uh, management, uh, long they have a long-term view, they, they're solid about the strategy, then they also have a focus on sustainability. So I think it's, uh, you know, it's uh, a mix and uh, that's the companies doing the best as well. So that is good news. Those are the companies <laughs> that are going to be around in the long term. Those are the ones that you want in your portfolio today. Absolutely. <laughs> Now, are there any uh, regional differences? Um, because you do travel around a lot. So you, you, I know that you get, to, you get to meet investors from across the world. Are there any regional differences in, in what they're preoccupied with? Or do you see sustainability as come, having come further uh, on, the, on the radar of, of, of certain, in certain regions than others? So far, we have seen that the uh, European companies or the European investors have been more focused on sustainability. So also the companies who have to deliver these sustainability reports or uh, the data we need to analyze them has been much more 
focused on this in Europe. We're seeing a growing awareness in the US, but Asia is still um, is still um, is still difficult to get this data. So uh, we have the job to do, and uh, that I think as well is the financial industry's job to be uh, much more clear and transparent, inform the clients how important it is. Uh, and uh, to contribute to um, to learn or to teach, um, you know, investors and and the public as well, how important this is. So it sounds like regulators have a have a, an important role to play as well. If if if, if having these regulations introduced by the European Union, as you, it sounds like it's actually had a, a genuine effect, and that it's it's brought to, to the attention of the investors and, and forcing companies to do it. So. How, so you, you're saying the policymakers have an important role there in introducing those sort of guidelines or recommendations um, to get companies on board and, and get investors to actually follow it? Yeah, to speed up the, you know, to speed up this process, we need the regulators as well. Uh, so I think we cannot make this uh, on our own. It needs to be a collaboration between the regulators, the companies, the financial industry, uh, the consumers to make this. Because it's also... Um, would also help if you have a push from the consumers. Mm. That could be a, a company, um, that could be a public company, uh, and also, you know, you and me. Mm. We could be much more um, clear and we could be much more aware of where we put our money. For example, where you where do you put your savings? You could actually help the environment much more but being more specific in where you put your savings than, for example, to, um, you know, to cut down on the water use you use every day to brush your teeth or, or other, you know, uh, sort your garbage, for mm. example. Mm. So what you do with your savings, your pension funds, for example, that is also something we could do as private per- uh, persons. And I don't think many people think about that, but that has much bigger effect than, you know, these small things. But we need to do those as well. Mm, so d- does that actually does that actually trigger up all the way up to the board level of the company for when people start placing their money differently? Does it actually does it actually go all the way up to the board and do they actually does it actually make companies change when they see that uh, that that even smaller investors not major institutional investors but even smaller investors are changing their habits absolutely because uh, you know you want to keep your clients or your customers and smaller large ones it's important and it says something about you know the massive move which is starting to to um, to to um, yeah the this um, big shift which is going on in the market and I think uh, that is in the importance of, of the also the management and the board to be aware of. Mm. So it's interesting to see how you know even small players can have an effect here and especially if they you know work together because there's no doubt you don't want to lose your clients and that could have a major impact on the reputation and risk of a company. You don't want to be a latecomer in this. Of course, it could be a bit challenge, uh, challenging to be the first, and we have seen that. But now it's starting to get much more mainstream, and then you just don't want to be the late one. Do you see any difference in the mentality of, of the millennials uh, and, 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 the, and the older generation? Is, is, are younger investors or are the youth more preoccupied with these questions? Is, it, is, is there a greater awareness among these people for that? For sure, when we start to see, you know, the people we, uh, who are teenagers today, they have a completely different mentality towards this. Mm-hmm. For them, it's natural to, to take care of the environment and think about climate risk. Uh, for us, we have to see it 
feel it and uh, then we're acting. So we are a bit slow. Mm. I think we brought up a bit of dependence of, for example, fossil fuels. Uh, We are brought up in an uh, era where oil was the dominating energy source. I hope and I don't think that the next generation will have that dependency and uh, we do see a change coming. And that will be interesting because this shift, you know, can go faster than we have thought of because the new generation or when the new gen- generation is taking over. Now, you said that we, uh, we, both you and I, since we're both Norwegians, we grew up uh, benefiting from the welfare of the Norwegian welfare state that, that to a large extent came from, from the revenue that we got from the petroleum sector. And a lot of this money went into the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is one of the biggest ones in the world today. Um, I suppose it's valued to about a little over $1 trillion today. It invests, it's the biggest investor in the world, equity-wise. It's got investments in in, in, in nearer 10, almost 10,000 companies, I believe. Um, if you were to advise the oil fund as to how to manage their portfolio, what would you tell them? I think they've... Uh They've uh, they actually uh, introduced a quite wise decision, if you ask me. They want to sell out of oil and gas, because in my um, in my opinion, I think you know the global oil consumption will reach a peak before before 2030, and then um, the dependence in oil will start to decline. And oil production has very long cycles. Uh, except from the uh, shale production in the US. So you don't want to be invested in, um, you know, um, in companies that will not be able to produce all their investments, stranded assets. Mm. And uh, with the development we're seeing on the technology side today, it might go even faster, maybe reach this uh, point of time where you see the tip before 2030. So I think, you know, they're doing a wise decision by, you know, at least asking the uh, parliament to to vote on this, and because they are afraid that you could see sharp falls, a sharp fall in the oil price, and it will, will be difficult to get out of the market. So, I think that's uh, a good financial decision. And then, of course, you can discuss if it's political or not. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, it's 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 an important it's an important shift, and coming from such a large um, actor, it's 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 uh, it also sets the tone of, um, globally uh, elsewhere as well. What they choose to do and how they choose to uh, how they choose to shift the uh, their investment portfolio. Now, following up on that, based on your experience from the from the oil and gas sector, what how what do you what are there any parallels or any learning points uh, from what's happened in the oil and gas sector that perhaps could be um, transposed onto what's happening in the food sector do you think that there are perhaps um, certain types of products that might be stranded assets or, or certain types of uh, companies that uh, that have seen um, uh, that are more forward-looking or future-looking uh, than others have you had the opportunity to to think about that at all I think uh, you're totally right that uh, this is not the only uh, only industry uh, where you could in the future find stranded assets because uh, consumers are starting to get much more aware. For example, the plastic problem, microplastic within, you know, uh, within uh, food and food production. Mm. Um, you also see unhealthy food, chemicals which has been used. Um, so I think, you know, the awareness from the consumers will change, uh, will change um, 
how you can produce products in the future. And uh, what we're seeing going on in the oil sector now is that even the oil companies are changing their production portfolio from only being oil and gas companies to being energy producers and looking into the green sectors, at least some of them are. Mm -hmm. I think we could see the same in food production, you know. Uh, producers who have been mainly in uh, maybe uh, producing uh, food or, or um, uh, yeah, products which have maybe a big content of uh, of uh, of sugar, for example, or unhealthy uh, or salt ingredients or trans fats. Yeah, it's, and exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, if they don't get, if they don't come up with uh, alternatives, I think you could soon end up with stranded assets there as well. So mm. it's very important to pay attention. Mm, absolutely. And what we've seen uh, from, 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 the, from the energy sector as well is if you come up with, with appealing solutions such as, such as Tesla, for instance, it can, it, can have a, it can have a rapid appeal and it can cause a real shift in consumer patterns. And so if we're able to come up with a similar, uh, Gunnel Stordan likes to call it a Tesla for the plate, which is a, a similar, tasty, attractive solution for consumers where they, um, it doesn't, it's not a sacrifice to switch, then they will do so if you come up with good food products that are healthy and sustainable but also happen to be tasty. Then consumers will, will, will follow and it's, it's, it's essentially just facilitating that and coming up with the, uh, with the innovations uh, that make it attractive and appealing. Now, so since we are um, uh, an organization dedicated to, to healthy and sustainable food, my final question to you, and I know that you don't have time to cook a lot because you, you work a lot, but if you were to invite your closest friends and family home to cook them a healthy and sustainable meal, what would you, what would you prepare for them, Tina? Um, I would prepare something, I, I think, yeah, either fish or something with vegetables. Uh, I think fresh food. I like fresh food. So maybe sushi. Uh, of course, we need to check where that fish is coming from because that's very important. Uh, but also vegetables is uh, very nice or a salad. But you're right. I'm not a very good cook. So <laughs> please don't ask me for a recipe. That sounded absolutely delicious. So I would come to your dinner if that was what you were serving. And it's a nice typical Nordic cuisine meal that you're preparing there which is is was just cited in an article recently as saying that it's up there as being as healthy as the mediterranean cuisine so you were spot on in terms of your in terms of your recommendation tina thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us it was an absolute pleasure to have you thank you That concludes today's episode, but don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Next week, we have the pleasure of talking to two civil society activists from Peru, Chef Carissa Becerra Biagioni, who founded the NGO La Revolución, which is all about educating children about real food, and Sandra Salcedo, who initiated Sobremesa, an initiative led by women in the gastronomy sector to support the SDGs. In the studio with me today was producer Gustav Glomsetz, I'm Marianne Stixett, and you've been listening to the Food Can Fix It podcast.